Hi everyone and welcome to this latest instalment of the Brexit and Beyond podcast from UK and a Changing Europe and I am absolutely delighted today to be joined by not one but two fantastic guests. First we have over from Northern Ireland Katie Haywood, Professor of Political Sociology at Queen's University Belfast. Hi Katie. Hi Anand. And as if that weren't enough to her right is Jill Rutter, our very own from the UK and a Changing Europe and I suppose the Institute for Government as well. Hi Jill. Hi Anand. And because we're cool, this is incredibly timely because we're sitting here talking to each other the day after Liz Truss issued what the newspapers have as some incendiary statements about the future of the protocol and the fact that the UK government simply does not accept the offer that the EU has made to date. So the threats are ranging and Katie and Jill are here to explain everything that's going on. So first and foremost, let me start with you, Katie. Uh, What did you make of what the Foreign Secretary said last night? So it's clearly a shift. So we had been getting some positive vibes from the Foreign Secretary about the need for ongoing engagement and talks. And uh, the talks have been suspended since the Joint Committee at the end of February, at which they said we need to continue talking about this after the election. Coming into the talks that she's going to have tomorrow, she said, essentially, let's um, start from the beginning. What you've done so far is not good enough. So they have said that the October non-paper, so-called, that you put forward as suggestions for solutions really doesn't cut it. In fact, it would make things a lot worse. Essentially now, it looks as though they're lining themselves up to act unilaterally with respect to the protocol to enable the British government to do what the DUP would like it to do, which is effectively remove the Irish Sea border. Fundamentally, we're talking about more uncertainty, at the very least, which is quite the opposite of what uh, businesses in Northern Ireland have been calling for. I mean, there's one thing I just do not understand, and I'm hoping one of you two can explain it to me, which is why the British government doesn't just keep doing what it's doing. I mean, they're not applying the protocol. They've unilaterally said we're going to have these grace periods. So the border, in effect, isn't there because we're not doing what we should be doing. Can't we just keep doing that? Wouldn't that be a sort of lower key way of achieving what we want? It is implementing the protocol to a degree. Mm -hmm. So businesses are... Um, having to comply with the necessary paperwork and some are undergoing checks and controls as they enter Northern Ireland. So there's a sort of very much a light touch protocol. But you're right, in effect, the EU has moved considerably to allow a situation in which the grace periods are effectively indefinitely extended for the time being. This is why it's quite interesting because the rhetoric, including from Trust on Tuesday night, was about, you know, this is a disaster for Northern Ireland. Businesses are being crippled and they're really ramping up the negative impact of the protocol, whereas in effect it's it's not actually too bad at the moment. So yeah, there's a sense of trying to build up to a conflict rather than to make the most of, as you say, the flexibilities that the EU has already shown. So what's really quite interesting is I saw, admittedly on Twitter, uh, a tweet about a National Institute report that's just come out, which suggests that the Northern Ireland economy is performing better than the rest of the UK at the moment. It's quite interesting because normally in all that economic analysis, we do like the stuff we published a couple Mm. of weeks ago. Northern Ireland's too small to distinguish, but they were saying actually there's a slightly higher rate of growth in Northern Ireland than the rest of the UK. Now, of course, the protocol is not being implemented fully. So in one sense, Liz Truss is is right that if you actually move to the Commission's October package, you'd see more controls than are being implemented in this period of extended grace periods. But the one thing that's really bad, both for the Northern Irish economy and actually for the rest of the UK economy, is to cast all this uncertainty over 
you know, the future trading relationship with the EU. Even the Chancellor was finally forced to admit at the Treasury Select Committee the other week that the UK economy had been damaged by reduced business investment because of Brexit uncertainty between 2016 and 2020. And it looks as though the government is hell-bent on entering another period of Brexit-related uncertainty just at the time when the economy is flailing anyway. Is the government really intending to do something or is the government intending to give the impression that it really wants to do something? By which I mean, you can come out with a bill, but early indications are that they're going to struggle getting that bill even through the commons at the moment because you're hearing Conservative MPs saying, hang on a sec, we can't condone this sort of unilateral international law breaking. And the prospects of it getting through the House of Lords unscathed are pretty slim, aren't they? Ultimately, would the House of Lords back down? Don't know, but that's going to take a long time can imagine it would get very severely bogged down. And we can see in the reaction from, for example, we've already had Simon Hoare, the chair of the Northern Ireland Affairs Committee, Theresa May coming out and denouncing the government's intentions. So I think you're absolutely right that we come in for a rough time in the Commons. The government might quite like that. I think one of the really interesting things, you know, there's the interesting interplay with Northern Ireland politics. I'm going to leave that to Katie. Mm. But there's also the interesting interplay with UK domestic politics as well. And lots of people have sort of thought, you know, was Liz Truss worried that she wasn't getting enough attention in the Queen's speech? You know, she didn't have a big bill to announce Mm. like some of the other people, Michael Gove, Pretty Patel had quite big things in the Queen's speech. There wasn't much from Liz Trust. She wanting to put her hand up and say, look, guys, I'm still here. I'm still relevant. We've always had this danger that when the Prime Minister feels he's under a degree of attack and a pressure from his backbenchers, particularly from the European research group, Steve Baker and colleagues. Remember, Steve Baker finally turned on the Prime Minister after his party gate fine, that the Prime Minister feels the need to throw some red meat at his backbenchers and the Northern Ireland Protocol and the threat to tear it up. Um, we have David Frost, if you like, as a sort of true light over the water, saying why the government's right to do that. You always have the risk that the government feels that that's where the politics is domestically. Mm-hmm. How it interacts with what nurse going on post-Northern mm-hmm. Ireland election, I'm definitely going to leave to Katie. <laughs> but Katie, I mean... I I take all those points about the politics, but there are genuine issues as far as the unionists are concerned around political armour. Well, if I could just sort of respond to what Jill was saying, which is really insightful. I mean, it reminds me of the fact that looking at our stakeholder workshops through the post-Brexit Governance NI project, what we've seen since January last year is that the impact of the protocol has been reducing as people have got used to the new systems and as uh, trade support services begun to work better. So it's taken time, but people are getting there. And so just this idea that you could suddenly, even put there the prospect of overhauling all of that or scrapping it, runs completely counter to any idea of facilitating business and economic growth in Northern Ireland. I mean, that's just straight up. Then you bring in the politics. And it is very true that the DUP have been raising the stakes as much as it's possible for them to do so. After the election results, they've made it absolutely clear, as long as the protocol is there, there'll be no executive. They want the UK government to do something significant. But of course, they're not the only ones in the Northern Ireland Assembly. Um, They have fewer seats than they did before. And there's a very clear mandate, if you like, in the Assembly, with 54 of the 90 MLAs saying, very clearly, they want the protocol to continue. Mm. And 
63 of the MLAs saying they want an agreement between the UK and the EU. It has to be done on that basis. So for to bring in this uncertainty, even if it's just in terms of an idea, you know, let's just put this out there that we, we, we're going to do this unilateral action or equip ourselves to do that. Even the idea itself brings huge instability because let's remember the Good Friday Belfast Agreement depends on this idea that the politics of one single party in Westminster should not determine what goes on in a devolved region of the United Kingdom, particularly Northern Ireland, which of course entails very fragile balance and the need for consensus as far as possible amongst the parties. I mean, the the DUP have adopted a very hard line position on this. Do you think they've, in a sense, gone too far? I mean, it it strikes me that there's very little prospect of the EU saying we're going to get rid of the protocol. Yeah. If you look very carefully at what they've been saying, the leadership is clear. It tries not to say remove the protocol or scrap mm-hmm. the protocol. Just talking about replacing the protocol, just talking about removing the sea border. And I think, obviously, as you'd appreciate, you know, within the party, there are hardline voices, one of whom is included in the Brexit Witness Archive that's being released this week, uh, Sammy Wilson. But you also have more moderate ones mm-hmm. too. And, and Jeffrey Donaldson, as the leader of the party is trying to balance all of these, I think that they are hearing from businesses too. There are genuine concerns, there are genuine issues. Everybody recognises that across all the parties. There does need to be adjustment. If we were to see the end of the grace periods, there really would be problems. And DUP will be hearing from businesses, you know, there are issues. But I think by and large, there isn't this sense of chaos is what we need right now. You know, just like change the regulatory system, completely change the labelling system, etc, etc. I mean, I'm, I'm sure nobody's asking for that. So they're trying to get a political win enough to get them to be able to say we've been heard, we've been reassured. This isn't a slippery slope to Irish unification, but not one that completely brings the uncertainty right to the heart of Northern Ireland's economy. Presumably then it's not beyond the realms of possibility that the EU can offer concessions such that the DUP can claim a win and the protocol in some way, shape or form functions to the satisfaction of both sides. Yeah, and this is a, this is a frustrating thing because it is there. I, I know that the talks between the UK and the EU have not gone very well. Mm-hmm. Right? So they've been meeting, but the, the starting point for the UK is their command paper in July, mm-hmm. which includes things that we know from our polling, testing the temperature, are not priorities for people in Northern Ireland, including things that were mentioned in Liz Truss's statement this week on VAT, for example, and the role for the Court of Justice of the EU. So where the UK has been coming from has potentially, I think, been trying to look for a big, big win like a big package. Whereas I think, in fact, as we know, with Good Friday agreements and all sorts of things, it's it's step by step. And this will be an evolving arrangement that will need small wins, perhaps. But they could there could be enough for those critical of the protocol, as it is at the moment, to be able to say, the EU has moved big time on medicines, mm-hmm. which is a primary concern. And that includes significant legislative change for the EU. That could have been sold as a win, and it wasn't even mentioned or acknowledged by the UK. So what are they waiting for? And possibly this new political environment just adds the intensity that possibly I think the UK might be hoping for the EU to be making a much bigger move in the direction of where the command paper was hoping. I think the question really, I think, is, is the atmosphere right for doing those sorts of technical negotiations? When we had our event uh, on Monday with a variety of people, I asked Ivan Rogers, our former permanent representative, in Brussels, how he might do a deal on this. And he said, well, the first thing was you'd have to have absolute trust on both sides, mm. that one side wouldn't just, yeah, one side, 
the UK side, wouldn't just pocket any move that the EU made and basically discount it in the way, as Katie said, they're actually not playing up the fact that the EU did move significantly on medicines and actually that you know, met a lot of the concerns, the legitimate concerns that have been Absolutely. raised there about supply of medicines to Northern Ireland. But the UK would just pocket those, not acknowledge it, and then come out with a sort of whole range of stuff. And actually some of the things that we had, Olaf Henriksen Bell, the EU director in the Foreign Office, he actually listed some things that you know were concerns. I mean, it's clear that the UK's starting position is no going back from the grace periods. I mean, you know, there can't be any more checks than are implied by the grace periods. It's quite an interesting move because, as I said, the sort of EU proposals would mean more compared to that. But then he listed some sort of minor annoyances for citizens in Northern Ireland, things like pets, mm. things like Amazon parcels. You think, actually, the EU could come out with those. But mm. the really interesting question, I think, with these sort of standoffs on both sides, I mean, statement rules between Shevkovich and trust is how do you create an environment or is there any appetite to create an environment in which you can actually go line by line through the practicalities of managing the EU's concerns about the single market and the UK concerns and the DUP concerns about it doesn't you don't want to feel like you're living in a foreign country if you're living in Northern Ireland that's the whole point of unionism that you know can you actually go through and say well that's necessary that's not and actually is there any flexibility on the uk side and we've seen this before with you know even at various points dup ministers suggesting doing a veterinary deal with the eu for Mm -hmm. the whole uk which would actually remove an awful lot of the most onerous provisions and actually a lot of farmers in the uk would enormously like for their exports to the eu so it wouldn't just be a sort of benefit there but obviously would have implications for your ability to do a trade deal particularly if you ever thought there was any prospect, pretty minimal at the moment, I would say, with the US. Just to follow on from that, I really think we should look to the US in terms of what it's going to do. If the UK does act unilaterally, they have such a strong sense of ownership, for want of a better word, over this situation Mm. with the Good Friday Agreement. And they have made it quite clear, I think, that if the UK acts in such a way that it sees as undermining the Good Friday Agreement, then they will be making it clear there will not be such a thing as a UK-US FTA. And they, in that, they associate supporting, protecting the Good Friday Agreement with the protocol. And, of course, that's the language in the protocol itself, you know, Mm. protecting the Good Friday Agreement is an objective of it. So, yeah, it'll be interesting to see how quick their reaction would be and how sharp. So all of that, in a sense, sort of adds to the impression that this is as much about posturing as it is about acting on the part of the UK government, because they're quite boxed in, given the US position, aren't they? I mean, it's hard to see how they can act on their rhetoric. What I don't see is what the end game is. I mean, on all sides, in a sense, what is the end game for the DUP? Because you can not create an executive in Northern Ireland, but then what? I mean, do you have further elections? Will you benefit from six months and a cost of living crisis during which you're talking about the protocol? Do you get the sense that there is, is a strategy here? Or is this just tactic upon tactic? So it's quite reminiscent of the period in the Brexit negotiations where not much was happening. It felt like a bit of a phony war. And yet the rhetoric from Theresa May and then Boris Johnson was increasingly intense. And at the heart of it was this kind of suicidal threat of no deal, Hmm. which everybody knew would harm the UK more than the EU. Mm -hmm. We've got a similar thing here with the DUP in its rhetoric is getting more and more heightened and the, and the risks for it are in so doing. But the threat ultimately would harm the DUP and, of course, Northern Ireland. 
my question is how long they can sustain such a situation, how long even their supporters, who are absolutely, as we know from our polling, very much of the view that the protocol undermines the union, which is why they see it as a as an issue of concern, you know, how much their supporters could stick with them through all of this. They they do need to have some show at least that the UK government is listening. So I think that's what's going on at the moment, that the DB has to prove to the their supporters at least that they have the ear of the government to some mm. degree, even though some of the messages are conflicting and a bit confusing. And in terms of the negotiations, Jill, do you see any prospect that with all this sort of apparent bad blood at the moment, the two sides might be able to come up with some sort of fix that averts a complete and utter sort of collapse in relations? I don't know. I think probably Stasis is actually as good as it gets, which is that there's all this rhetoric going on <laughs> over here. Mm. And actually, the grace period just sort of continuous background noise and the UK might publish its thing. But the question is, at, at some point, does EU patients break and it start initiating its own processes? I think really interesting question is your one about does anyone have an end game here? Mm. And this government on a whole variety of issues has always struck me as one that lives for the next statement, the end of the week or whatever. And we saw that in their approach to this Northern Ireland protocol. It was something designed to get them out of a hole that had been created in autumn 2019. And they did that. And then again, I think, and you know, some, as Katie said, do read our Brexit Witness Archive interviews. And then again, you know, the way in which they treated it in December 2020, you know, we need to be able to move on. We need to be able to get out of this. And what we'll do for now. I was very struck. I mean, I don't know, this is going to be a very obscure reference, but I recommended to you this book about cricket data. Mm-hmm. And it has a really interesting thing in it about the way in which, and forgive me, non-cricket fans, particularly in Northern Ireland, in the preparations for the Indian Premier League auction, which is one of my favourite things in the entire universe, <laughs> the Rajasthan Royals gamed every potential outcome to work out their best bidding strategy to get the players they needed to be able to compete. And I just sat there and thought, I wonder whether on anything, anyone in government, either the DUP or the UK government, sits down and actually thinks, well, if we do this, what will the other side do? Where will it leave us? What might we do next? And things like that. I think the amount of care and attention that went into preparing an Indian Premier League auction mm. might be quite well applied <laughs> in the UK government or in the DUP as they think through, mm. actually, where do we think these sets of moves are going to lead us? Because at the moment, we're dominated, I think, by, you know, what do I do tomorrow? Where do I go? Does it do that? Rather than thinking, actually, is any of this about creating the right environment for the UK, the EU, you know, in the context of Ukraine, in the context of, you know, stagflation back to the 70s, is any of this actually going to create the environment we need to achieve loads and loads of other things that really matter to people? Really interesting, you mentioned the cost of living thing in Northern Ireland. If the DUP stay out of the executive, then the Northern Ireland executive has to function on this sort of bare-bonesy basis, Mm. where if the Chancellor announces a big spending package. They don't have the authority to spend it in Northern Ireland. I mean, you know, this will have real consequences for people in Northern Ireland. Yeah. You know, that's not great either. Yeah. So it's, it could be a complete mess. So I think we do need both sides to sit back and actually think, where do we think we could get this to long term rather than just sort of go by what will get us through to the weekend? You're absolutely right about not necessarily thinking about how the other side is going to react. And if you think of what's happening potentially in 
within the Conservative Party and within the DUP, how they're responding to this really complicated, messy situation is by looking over their shoulder to, to the hardliners, perhaps within, and obviously the DUP is very influenced by the traditional unionist voice MLA, the singular MLA, and others outside the party who they think will undermine their position by you know, pointing to them as being too weak. I'm sure there's similar things going on within the Tory party. So there is that dynamic, which is then for us trying to make sense of it and for businesses trying to say, you know, this is the, this would be the logical way forward. You know, it's sort of, we're almost just looking at different maps, I think, looking at completely different scenarios. We're not necessarily considering those very personality level dynamics. Hmm. And on the EU side, I mean, we hear a lot about dangers to the single market and it's hard sometimes not to think, Really? Is there that much danger to the single market having flexibility over this protocol? What's your impression, Katie? I have heard from uh, representatives of the Commission when asked this question. The dangers and the risks that they point to relate to customs rather than single market mm-hmm. issues and regulatory issues. Now, I do believe, obviously, it's it's clear that if the UK does diverge, if we have what was referenced in the Queen's speech yesterday, movement on genetically modified goods, for example, then that would increase the risk. Mm-hmm. But for the time being, yeah, the, the issues are more like, you know, goods that haven't been declared or, you know, excise duty not being paid, yeah. that kind of stuff, which is pretty much part of the course. So I do think there is a need for, as everybody's sort of saying on the UK side, more risk-based analysis. The question is, you know, on what basis do you assess that risk? You need the information. I think there's been some progress, I, I gather, on the sharing of information from the UK to the EU. And I, I do think the more that is, if, if there's genuinely, you know, not a problem, the UK has to prove that to the EU by sharing that information and then just reducing the suspicions on the, on their part. This all goes back to Jill's really fundamental point, which is about trust. If you genuinely want the EU to move, of course you have to build that trust. And fundamentally, not necessarily be talking about solutions at the same time as saying we're going to walk away, you know, just an acknowledgement of the real difficulties that there are in trying to manage um, a hard Brexit and at the same time avoid hard borders around Northern Ireland. Though at the moment, it seems to me that the prospects of building trust are fairly slim, given, yeah, uh, the, given the tone of the British government, given the politics here, given the sort of fragility of the Prime Minister's own position. Do you see any prospect at all that what the British government is doing might lead the EU to think, OK, look, we're just going to get this sorted out. We've got bigger fish to fry. Let's just be flexible. If it means giving them a win, let's give them a win and move on. So there's quite a lot of turnover of staff on both sides. and People are quite exhausted yeah. from anything else, but they've wanted to find a solution. I mean, there is, there's only so many slaps in the face you can get. And I do think the EU is possibly feeling, you know, really... It could have been movement, but why would we take that extra step if the non-papers, which were, you know, they, they would have added more friction, but it was they had moved a long way in terms of what they were prepared to accept according mm. to what they were suggesting might happen. So having done that and now for it to be, you know, all screwed up in a ball and thrown away, you could imagine that that's extremely dispiriting apart yeah. from anything else. And it would almost seem ridiculous then to come back and say, all right, what would you like me to do next? It might just be easier for the EU effectively do what you were suggesting in the first place of just sort of let this sort of you know fragile status quo go on and let the UK government see if it can you know get legislation through hold the sort of threat in the backdrop that the EU could start reconsidering the TCA but not actually do anything Mm. immediately and frankly just say well let's just see how long 
Boris Johnson has, mm. let's see how long this government has, yeah. and let's see actually if down the line there isn't some sort of change in UK politics that would open up a range of possibilities to a new and different deal with somebody else. Uh, yeah, but, but then of course you have Northern Ireland and the, the fact that Sinn Féin in particular, significant party, right, feel very much that the protocol is something they do not want to lose. And just as the DUP is disgusted with the protocols of the Underwriting Union, Sinn Féin values the protocol fundamentally because it sees as protecting the open border and the island of Ireland and the Good Friday Agreement. So the feelings are very strong on both ends of the spectrum in Northern Ireland. And for the UK to act in this way, even if it is just a gesture, really heats up the pressure when it comes to trying to form an executive. Because they do this with the DUP, Sinn Féin's demands will would go up as well. But uh, Katie, is there no sense? I mean, Sinn Féin, I am going to exempt from my short termist. I think Sinn Féin play a very long game and obviously, you know, shorter run thing, maybe to have a functioning protocol, but their longer run desire is for reunification in the yeah. island of Ireland and to trigger a border poll is clearly nowhere near the right sort of threshold yet for a border poll in Northern Ireland. But I remember being very struck a couple of years ago when I was talking to, in Belfast, talking to business organisations saying that actually Brexit was making some sort of, you know, unionist-owned businesses thinking, well, you know, Ireland's changed. I'd get free movement of labour, so my migration problems would go. I don't have any of these hassles. I get proper sort of, you know, supply into the single market and 12.5% corporation tax. So actually, maybe I need to look again at whether the interests, you know, my interests are best served by staying in the UK. Is there any sense of a sort of movement in opinion that might sort of make some of those people, you know, beyond the nationalist block move within Um, that sort of, you know, now quite big block of people who voted Alliance? Mm. This is an opportunity for me to promote (laughs) the the launch of the Northern 9-11 Times survey results with you can change in Europe, which will be on the 26th of May. And we've got the latest polling there on public opinion with respect to those issues. But just broadly speaking, maybe some individual business people might be thinking along those lines. But really, it's a sort of a leave remain issue. A softer unionists mm-hmm. who voted remain, and maybe those in the middle ground, are beginning to think differently. Now, I'm, I really would be careful about not making broad generalisations. Mm-hmm. But especially the thinking, if they're not particularly passionate either mm-hmm. way, then yes, what's the situation? And the British governments could easily put people off rather than attract them to the union. But for unionists generally, it seems even the economic situation isn't the clincher. It comes obviously unsurprisingly down to political comfort and identity. And so for many unions, and you do you do see this within unionism at the moment, you just have this this tension, you know, where does Northern Ireland sit longer term and will we continue to accommodate and recognise the existence and the validity of other identities in Northern Ireland, trying to work together with them, or do we just draw the line and say we need to you know, shore up that strong connection to London, even if it gives us slightly less apparent significance in Northern Ireland itself? So I suppose my profound conclusion from all of this is it's bloody complicated. There's layers upon layers upon layers to this whole issue of the protocol and the interaction between yeah. EU, UK, GB, NI. Katie, thank you so much for coming in and talking to us. Jill, thank you as ever. I suspect this isn't going to be the last time we talk about the protocol on this podcast, but I hope that we have made this slightly clearer for those listening. Thank you both. Thanks, <laughs> Alan.